Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sethi Kogan. This week was an important one in the U.S.-Israel relationship as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu came to Washington, D.C. There he met with President Trump, congressional leaders, and spoke at APAC's annual conference. Joining us now is Ambassador Dan Shapiro, who served from 2011 to 2017 as the American ambassador to Israel. Currently, he's a fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, and I'll add with pride in my alma mater, is the visiting scholar in residence at Columbia Barnard Hillel. Ambassador Shapiro, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Effie. Good to be with you. One thing that was just glaringly obvious this week is how at home Prime Minister Netanyahu feels in D.C. nowadays. He received a thunderous welcome when he spoke at APAC's conference. And just this morning, he said that he hasn't encountered any disagreements at all with President Trump about anything. Are you surprised at how well he and President Trump get along? I'm not that surprised. They come from to the extent President Trump has an ideology, maybe a (laughs) similar political camp. And certainly they have advisors who are of a similar ideological stripe and uh, come from similar backgrounds. So I'm not that surprised. I do think there are things that are very unknown about uh, President Trump's policies because the policies are relatively undeveloped. And I think that unpredictability is probably a source of a little bit of concern by Netanyahu, and he needs to try to play it such that he stays on Trump's good side and doesn't have uh, the day occur that he wakes up and President Trump has tweeted something uh, that he's unhappy with. Clearly, the Jerusalem announcement was very welcomed uh, by the prime minister and by many Israelis, although even with regard to that, President Trump has alluded to some expectation that Israel would be asked to um, pay or give something uh, to help advance a peace negotiation, having received this very welcome uh, step early in the process. And then on other things like uh, Syria, where the U.S. uh, role in helping prevent Iran from entrenching itself militarily in Syria in a way that could threaten Israel, it's very murky exactly what the U.S. role is. Uh, That may not be a source of disagreement, but I'm not sure it's an area of total convergence between Israel and the United States uh, either. Well, many Israeli military officials will point to that situation on the northern border, the the problems in Syria, as the most pressing security threat that Israel faces uh, right now. Uh, Is there more of a role that the U.S. could be playing to help avoid that catastrophe? Indeed. I think there's definitely a role for the United States. We certainly already have a highly successful uh, intelligence cooperation between uh, our two intelligence communities, but it should be focused in very, in a very fine way on uh, identifying uh, those Iranian uh, targets uh, in Israel, uh, in Syria rather, that could threaten Israel. It should always be the case, and this was true in the Obama administration and has been in the Trump administration, but could be elevated, that we would defend Israel's legitimacy and its freedom of action to strike targets uh, such as weapon shipments into Hezbollah, to Lebanon to serve Hezbollah through Syria, but also those Iranian targets, and to be an advocate for Israel internationally, including with the Russians, with the Europeans, uh, where that's necessary. The $38 billion MOU, Memorandum of Understanding on Military Assistance, that was signed at the end of the Obama administration includes $500 million a year for missile defense systems 
uh, Iron Dome, and now David's Sling and Arrow 3. Those are the longer-range missile defense systems that Israel has, and they're deployed, but still need uh, significant funding to uh, increase the inventory of interceptor missiles. I'd like to see Congress and the administration look at uh, an advance on that money so that Israel could receive more of that money sooner and accelerate the production uh, of those missiles. And we just this week are seeing a U.S.-Israel joint military exercise that takes place every two years. I was there for three uh, versions of it called Juniper Cobra, in which about a 1,000 American troops from European command come to Israel and drill with their Israeli counterparts how the United States would help Israel defend itself in a major missile war uh, with missiles coming from Iran and Syria and, and Lebanon. That exercise is critically important to give Israel assurance that in the worst case it would have that uh, extra backstop, but it needs to also be refined in a way that the U.S. assets and personnel could arrive as early as possible to be relevant to that battle. I was very concerned to see Secretary Tillerson travel in the Middle East uh, the, the very day uh, or that very week after the Iranian drone incursion into Israel on uh, February 10th that led to the exchange of, of attacks and the downing of an Israeli F-16, but not add a stop in Israel to his itinerary. Uh, that would have been a very important opportunity to show solidarity with Israel to reinforce uh, Israeli messages of deterrence uh, in Lebanon and in other countries. And I think Secretary Tillerson missed an opportunity to uh, do more to help give Israelis confidence that we will have their back against that uh, threat in Syria. Let's turn now to Jerusalem. Here at AJC, we like nuance. Uh, You have been more nuanced than most about President Trump's December announcement that the United States would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. I think many on the left kind of reflexively treated it as the sign of an impending catastrophe, and many on the right were almost triumphal in, in their welcoming it. Can you walk us through where where you stood and what you would like to see happen next? Sure. There's no dispute, certainly no doubt in my mind, uh, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. It always has been uh, since 1948. And of course, the uh, centuries of historic Jewish ties to Jerusalem are well known. Sometimes, by the way, they're called into question, and they're, they're, there's a part of a delegitimization of Israel that is inclusive of casting doubt on historic Jews' ties in Jerusalem. So for us to recognize West Jerusalem or as Israel's capital, to house our embassy there, is indeed a recognition of facts. In fact, as, as functionally, we've been treating it that way for many years. Even though our embassy is in Tel Aviv, when I served there, I would get in my car almost every day and drive to Jerusalem and meet with Israeli government officials in their offices. Uh, President Obama stayed at the King David Hotel. Secretaries of State for decades have based their diplomacy out of Jerusalem. So there's no question that West Jerusalem, which always has been part of Israel and would be part of Israel in any imaginable two-state solution, uh, is Israel's capital. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to recognize that. In fact, I would have even gone further and had the embassy be moved on the same day uh, rather than bifurcate the two decisions. At the same time, what I had recommended before uh, the decision was made, and unfortunately wasn't uh, carried forward, was to use that decision, the right thing in my mind, but to advance other objectives, including our broader strategic objective, which is an end of the conflict in a two-state solution. The strategic objective is not where does our embassy sit, it's to end the conflict. And to do that, and to allow that decision on our embassy in Jerusalem to be absorbed by Palestinians and others in a way that prevent a a negative reaction and, in in fact, uh, facilitates some kind of forward movement 
we would need to describe the fuller two-state solution plan, the plan presumably that Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have been working on for many months but hasn't been presented. And we'd have to speak openly about the aspirations of Palestinians for their own capital in East Jerusalem and that that could be achieved on some borders, obviously, to be negotiated, but in negotiations. So I think they really missed an opportunity to do the the right thing in the smart way. And uh, the result was, of course, a very strong uh, negative reaction from the Palestinians, not excessively violent. There were some demonstrations, but that wasn't the main issue. It was President Abbas's strong criticism. He went way, way over the line of acceptable discourse in a speech he gave on January uh, 14th, uh, which I think removes him from any future negotiations uh, on a two-state solution. But I don't think it's too late in this sense, uh, because they have now announced that they will formally open the U.S. Embassy uh, in Jerusalem on, uh, May, in May, on May 14th. Uh, that's another opportunity to place that decision uh, in the context of the broader plan, in the context of Palestinians understanding where their aspirations in Jerusalem fit into this story, uh, and using it to advance uh, our broader objective. I, I hope they won't miss the opportunity a second time. America has been called the indispensable broker for the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Are we fulfilling our indispensable role right now? Well, I don't think there's an alternative. I don't think uh, the Russians or the Europeans or the United Nations or really any other country or set of international actors can replace the United States in that role. Our historic commitment uh, to it uh, and the successes that we've uh, helped uh, facilitate are part of that. Our, obviously, our close relationship with Israel and the trust Israel has in the United States and, and probably in no other country is part of that. So I do think that's uh, that's necessary for the United States to be center of that. To that. But in order to be effective, uh, the United States also has to be able to have relationships and give and take and be trusted by other parties. It's clear that there are other Arab nations that are uh, very satisfied with the Trump administration. I put Egypt and Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, in that category. And it may be that the Palestinian issue is less of concern to them. But if you've reached a situation where the Palestinians are barely uh, in communication with the uh, U.S. administration, it means that we simply just can't be effective. It doesn't mean uh, you have to chase after them with with goodies or uh, offer them uh, concessions just to get them to show up to talk, but it does mean that a different and more sophisticated kind of diplomacy is required. Otherwise, we may leave the Israelis feeling uh, very happy uh, that there isn't any disagreement, as as you said, Prime Minister Netanyahu described. But we certainly aren't going to make any advances uh, toward achieving uh, their goal, as I understand their goal, of an end to the conflict and our own goals, our own interests of a two-state solution. Is it more important that Jared Kushner try or that he not fail? Would you rather see a bad plan or no plan at all? Obviously, we'd all rather see a good plan. I think it would be a mistake to do what some are advising the administration, which is to issue a very one-sided plan that uh, provides the Palestinians nothing more than a few isolated islands of autonomy and no real uh, viable sovereign entity, uh, no presence in East Jerusalem for their capital. I think that would be a mistake. Uh, Undoubtedly, the Palestinians would reject it out of hand if they would even read it. Undoubtedly, the Israeli side would would say yes or yes, but they might even find elements of it that they didn't want to fully embrace and try to uh, capture those as new American positions. But I think it would accelerate the drift away from negotiations toward a two-state solution and the drift toward uh, a binational reality, which is uh, unfortunately seeming more present and, and more possible with every every passing month. 
So I think a bad plan is a mistake, and I would rather not have a plan. I mean, in fairness to Jared Kushner and President Trump and everybody in the administration who is focusing on this issue, I think the situation they inherited, and certainly one we have now, uh, is one in which there's no serious prospect of negotiations between these two leaderships, much less an agreement on a two-state solution. They've already had two or three rounds of failed negotiations between them. They mistrust each other completely. President Abbas is hampered by the succession struggle that takes place beneath him, his constant rivalry with Hamas, the the Islamist Palestinian party, uh, for influence. And uh, he's not shown himself to have necessarily the political strength uh, to make bold concessions uh, in the face of those pressures. And Prime Minister Netanyahu leads a coalition that is dominated by voices who actually do not support a two-state solution, and they're very open about it. And given the legal uh, challenges he's now facing, I think he has even less flexibility as he tries to retain the support of his party and his coalition to make bold concessions. So in fairness to the American administration, uh, they don't have a serious prospect of negotiations. Therefore, uh, a detailed plan that's intended to produce those negotiations is probably not the right way to go. I, I would recommend a more general restatement of the goal, which is a two-state solution. They haven't been as clear about that as they should be, and President Trump uses other formulations, but two states is very important to be clear about. And then talk about the the steps each side can take independently on the ground that don't require negotiations that reinforce uh, the prospects of eventually achieving that uh, two-state solution in negotiations, even if the negotiations themselves would be postponed for another one or two or five years until you have a better leadership dynamic in place. Ambassador Shapiro, I'm hoping that you can help me understand something that I think a lot of us have been puzzling over for a long time, which is that so often people say that the window for the two-state solution is closing or that the two-state solution is on life support. That's often kind of the metaphor that people reach for. It seems to me that these things don't often happen in a neat and orderly process in this region, right? If if someone in 1973 were to say, you know, the Egyptian-Israeli peace process is on life support, they, they probably wouldn't even go that far. They would say it, it's dead. There's no such thing as, as uh, any prospect for peace between Egypt and Israel. You know, history would have made a fool of them just six years later with the peace accords in, in 1979. Do you think that when Israeli-Palestinian peace comes, it'll come through this kind of neat and orderly process that we've been envisioning since Oslo? Or will it be, you know, some momentous change, something that, you know, you know, it could even take the form initially of a, of a catastrophe, uh, but that could ultimately uh, result in a positive change for both sides. Uh, I, I think that's a, a pretty profound insight. I mean, we shouldn't be Pollyannish about this. It's getting harder to achieve a two-state solution. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Attitudes are hardening. There, of course, continues to be Palestinian incitement of violence and delegitimization of Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, There continues to be the expansion of Israeli settlements, both in ways that could be accommodated in a land swap and a two-state solution and others that would be very, very hard to do so and leave Palestinian territory uh, divided and and carved up into non-contiguous ways. Uh, So I think it's getting harder, and I think we shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge that. And that worries me, because I do think it's the only way this conflict will end. It's the only way Israel can remain secure and Jewish and democratic. It's the only way Palestinians can meet their aspirations, and it's the only way to ultimately serve American interests. Um, Having said that, the example you gave of the Egyptian story is 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 a great one, and it has a lot to do with leadership. 
you know, when we just passed in November the 40th anniversary of President Sadat, uh, coming to uh, Israel, the President Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt. And if you had polled Israelis a few days, maybe even a few hours before he arrived on that historic visit in 1977, he would have still been seen as enemy number one uh, to Israelis. He was the president of, of the largest Arab country that had twice in the previous decade fought wars to try to uh, uh, defeat, even destroy Israel. Um, and uh, he was not a beloved uh, figure by any means. Uh, nevertheless, he came to uh, Ben-Gurion, he landed at Ben-Gurion Airport, and I would say, and most Israelis of a certain age could confirm this, almost instantaneously he was transformed into this completely different figure. He was seen as friendly. He was seen as reaching out his hand. He, of course, was received in a similar fashion by Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who was considered to be a hardline Israeli prime minister. And all of a sudden, things that seemed impossible uh, days before became possible. So the notion of Egypt uh, recognizing Israel and opening an embassy in Israel and opening an Israeli embassy in Cairo, unthinkable only days earlier, suddenly became a reality. The notion of Israel withdrawing from the Sinai Peninsula, where it had captured from Egypt in the Six-Day War in 1967 and put in place some settlements and some air bases and had uh, uh, started to exploit natural resources, was unthinkable until it suddenly became obvious that that was a land-for-peace deal that uh, almost every Israeli would accept. So a lot has to do with leadership. When the right leaders come along in the right context and reach out to each other and create the sense of partnership with one another and project that to their publics in a way that the public opinion starts to shift, things that seem impossible can become possible. But that's uh, one of the big momentous changes that uh, we would be needing to see in order to have a uh, a real shift in the direction of achieving two states. The current trend is not in that direction. As you said, there might also be some, God forbid, cataclysmic event that could produce it. There might also be some moment when Israelis will decide on their own uh, that uh, they need to take some steps unilaterally to preserve uh, the options uh, for an eventual two-state solution, even if they don't feel they have a Palestinian partner. So there are various ways that could go, but you know, we should also be honest with ourselves about what the current trends are. Last question. When you were ambassador, you were responsible for championing the U.S.-Israel relationship. How's that relationship doing right now? Well, it's doing very well. uh, And in many ways, it's uh, doing well in continuity with the way it was doing during the Obama administration. And I'd say uh, under our predecessors as well. You know, when many people think about the Obama years, uh, they think about the disagreements, and we had very uh, public and profound disagreements on important things like the Iran nuclear deal and like uh, West Bank settlements. And, uh, you know, I would never suggest that didn't happen. But at the same time that was happening, dramatically upgraded our intelligence cooperation. We dramatically, to, to deal with the common threats in the Middle East, including ISIS, where Israel's contributed a lot, we dramatically upgraded our joint military training. And I mentioned earlier, exercise that's going on right now. We reached major breakthroughs in technology with the missile defense systems like Iron Dome, which have saved you know, uh, untold numbers of Israeli lives and also Palestinian lives. We you know, helped Israel defend itself against all sorts of campaigns of delegitimization and BDS uh, around the world. 
We uh, helped the private sector build what is now a uh, really a new pillar of this relationship, which is a major economic and uh, technology and innovation partnership uh, that uh, is really changing the face in many ways of the relationship. So in many ways, it's very, very strong. And there's a lot to be optimistic about uh, that's serving both of our interests and and, and so on. Um, Obviously, there are tensions and and there may be some drifts in the demographics of both countries that uh, we'll have to work on and and try to make sure that uh, Israelis who may be right of center and uh, young progressives in the United States who are uh, maybe orient the other way can still find those commonalities uh, that have been part of the common values pillar of our relationship through many years. But uh, on balance, I'm optimistic uh, that uh, what has been a great partnership continues to be one and, and can continue to be one. Ambassador Shapiro, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Take care and uh, try to stay warm while you're here in New York. Thanks, Effie. Enjoyed it. Our next guest is the Washington Bureau Chief and White House Correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, Michael Wilner. Michael, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Typically, being beloved by Americans has not been much of an asset for Israeli politicians, right? I'm thinking of Shimon Peres and Abba Iban, who are two towering figures in the American Zionist mind, uh, but who never actually found much electoral success in Israel. Now, you were there this week uh, when Prime Minister Netanyahu addressed AIPAC's annual conference and had people in the crowd literally shouting how much they loved him. Why does the prime minister have such a strong bond with some American Jews? And is that an asset for him at home? Well, first of all, he's, a, he's an historically divisive prime minister in the United States, at least according to Pew Research Center polling. So while he does obviously have very vocal support at, at an organization like APAC, which is going to bring out people who are invested in uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship in a certain way, that doesn't necessarily translate to the wider public. So amongst Republicans, he has very high approval ratings, generally speaking, and generally amongst Democrats, they're far more mixed. Whether or not that translates to uh, Israeli electoral politics is a good question, and you raise interesting historic parallels. But when it comes to Netanyahu, who has really defined his entire tenure on security, and one of the pillars of that being the U.S.-Israel relationship, maintaining strong U.S. support. You know, I, I think it, it may be a different story when it comes to this particular prime minister. You mentioned that Prime Minister Netanyahu is a divisive figure here in America. Do Israelis worry about Israel being seen as a partisan issue in the states? Is there any kind of national conversation about the cause of Israel being too closely linked to President Trump and what that would mean for the future of bipartisan support for Israel? I think there's a strong sense of sovereignty, is the way I would put it, uh, in Israel that, you know what, at the end of the day, just because the Americans are tremendously generous with us doesn't mean that they have purchased a seat on our security cabinet. They they feel as if they, as Israelis, as you mentioned, living there, know what's best for them, and they're not going to compromise that negotiations with one party or another in 
Congress. I think when it comes to support for Donald Trump, they look to their basic needs, whether he's supporting those needs. And the consequences of this sort of embrace of Donald Trump on domestic impressions of Israel, I don't think it supersedes their concern with getting the support they need for their, you know, for their fundamental security priorities. Whether or not Israel's diplomats understand that sort of the embrace of the ogre of the left has long-term impact on the impression of Israel on the left, it's a good question, but I don't think that they really think that way from my experience. One of the things that Prime Minister Netanyahu discussed uh, with President Trump was the future of the Iran deal. And Vice President Pence uh, told the crowd at APAC that the U.S. will end the Iran deal immediately uh, if it's not fixed. How serious do you think the Trump administration is about ending the Iran deal? And would that be a good thing for Israel? That really is the question, isn't it? Uh, I think we're all trying to figure out just how serious the president is. There's certain people I speak with who are in a position to speak to it, who insist that, you know, in his gut, he really is willing to to walk away. And they actually point to a recent, uh, obviously, in January, the president was forced to either issue new waivers for nuclear-related sanctions as part of the nuclear deal or to let them go back into effect. And he signed those waivers which are good for 120 days, but he said, this is the last time I'm going to be signing these waivers. By doing so, people who were part of this decision say to me, the president very well knows that he was putting himself in a box. The president's condition for that was he wants Europe to to express a clear readiness to either negotiate an addendum to the deal uh, that fixes certain aspects of it or to reopen the existing deal. Europe is unlikely, I would say, almost certain not to uh, reopen the deal, certainly not in 120 days by mid-May. But it's possible that they could express, you know, a quote-unquote willingness to discuss a an Iran deal 2.0, an addendum that would extend the deal beyond the 10, 15-year provisions that expire. It would be something similar to what we saw recently with the, with the, the president's decision on tariffs, where he just bucked his entire economic council and all of their advice and just went ahead and, and made this off-the-cuff decision that has massive consequences, if possible, on the nuclear deal. But nobody really knows what he's going to do. And that's the Trump administration for you. <laughs> I, I think I think it's an understatement to say that unpredictability has been a watchword of this administration. Sure, sure. <laughs> but nevertheless, as the Washington bureau chief, you need to explain America to your readership in Israel. And I'm wondering, what can you possibly say? <laughs> uh, you know, in all seriousness, has America become more difficult to explain lately? You know, we're in a, an interesting position because a lot of our online readership is actually in the United States. So it does go both ways. We also have to explain Israel to to a large American audience, which has always been difficult, I will <laughs> say. But you're right that sometimes I'm, I'm confounded trying to explain what's happening um, to, to an outside audience. And one really difficult moment for us was explaining or trying to understand ourselves, uh, the Charlottesville moment and, and just this phenomenon in the United States of xenophobia, a rise in anti-Semitism. There's 
obviously a lot of interest and concern in, in that phenomenon. And where the president stands on this is just a constant question. He surrounds himself by advisors who you would think give him an educated perspective on this. People like Gary Cohen, who left this week, and obviously his daughter and son-in-law. All of these things we try and, and delve into, but I, I would also say that people don't come to any Israeli outlet to understand you know, the Russia investigation or the like. They come to us to understand specific things about what's going on in the Trump administration. And they're relatively siloed from the daily crisis and the daily chaos. There is a semblance of organization and competence when it comes to the Middle East peace team and when it comes to the National Security Council. So there hasn't been that daily confusion as with a lot of my other White House correspondent colleagues. Michael, that kind of in-between space that the Jerusalem Post occupies being an English language paper published in Israel, I think makes you uniquely suited to help help me understand something I've been thinking about for a while now. It seems like the news about Israel has been a tale of two countries lately. Many American Jews, when they think about Israel, they're thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Maybe they know about the threats posed by Iran and Syria. Maybe they're worried about terrorists in the region. But Israelis, the ones who actually live with all of those threats, they're much more fixated in their news coverage on the investigations into Prime Minister Netanyahu. Which of these stories, the kind of security story versus the scandal story, is going to be more significant in the long run? Well, you know, I cover Washington for the Post, and it's a great question for me because how much do the you know corruption probes into the prime minister affect my coverage? Actually, very little. We have lots of correspondents in Israel, top talent who are all over the story, as we must be, but it just hasn't come over here yet. And similarly, the other way around, you know, we did a story back in July, I believe, on whether or not the Russia investigation and all of the, you know, all of its tentacles on, you know, Jared Kushner and the like had any effect on Israeli impressions of the Trump administration of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and their ability to make peace and their credibility. And not only with the Israelis, actually also with the Palestinians. And what we basically heard was, Come back to us when there's an indictment or what, or when, you know, somebody is, at, you know, on the verge of either losing their job or, in the case of the president, impeachment. These investigations are really domestic affairs. Whether or not they should be, you know, whether or not the Israelis should be concerned with what's happening over here is an interesting question. Whether or not the Trump administration should be concerned with whether Netanyahu is legitimately corrupt, that's a good question. But... Just practically speaking, they haven't really affected the other side. Michael, thanks very much for sharing these insights with us. Take care. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Prince William. Good for the Jews? If you're like me, you've watched every episode of The Crown on Netflix. 
Prince William won't be born on the show for decades, but in the very first episode, we saw his great-grandmother, Princess Alice. That's Prince Philip's mother, Queen Elizabeth II's mother-in-law. Princess Alice was a deeply religious woman, and after she died, she was eventually buried on Har Hazatim, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Despite Alice's resting place, and despite the fact that Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum, named her a righteous among the nations for saving Greek Jews during the Holocaust, no British royal has ever paid an official visit to Israel. That all changes this summer. Because this week, the royal family announced that Prince William will visit Israel in the coming months. There's no word yet on whether Duchess Kate and their two adorable children will be joining them. Nevertheless, Israelis are thrilled. Finally, 70 years after British colonial rule ended, and 70 years since Israel declared its independence, a member of the British royal family will visit the Jewish state. As Israel's relations improve with countries all over the world, this new display of the warmth of British-Israeli relations can only be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC's Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. Send your comments and questions to Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC's Passport.